Yeah, well, when they were drawing straws to see who was going to get to do this, uh, I didn't know I was going to get the. No, actually, I volunteered. I, my father warned me when I joined the military. He said, don't volunteer for anything. <laughs> and I never took that lesson to heart, so here I am. <laughs> uh, today's subject is going to be uncomfortable for you and for me. Nobody wants to talk about this. Our sex are, our culture is sex-crazed. I mean, we think sex is the God that's going to satisfy us more than anything else. And if you haven't noticed that around you, then you just must not watch anything or listen to anything. Uh, something that God created to be good and beautiful in the context of marriage, we've perverted into something that we use to fulfill our own desires and to act violently against other people. If you read the media anywhere, you see that this is a big topic. I mean, even yesterday in the news, it was the main thing at some of the graduations at military academies. And you know that even here at Fort Hood, we became the subject of national attention recently because sexual assault has become such a big deal, it is causing a lot of problems. So how should we respond? How should the body of Christ respond to this issue? What should we do? I want to tell you today, we're going to focus more on what the victims' issues are. Uh, I'm not going to focus on the perpetrators, so that's the subject for another time. Uh, But I do want you to know we care about the victims. That's where we're going to start with this. For some of you listening to this topic, it's going to be a lot like the illustration I'm going to talk to you about next. Uh, When I was younger, (laughs) Dave's not the only old guy around here, okay? (laughs) Anyway, when I was younger, I have two sons. When my oldest son was 13 years old, I was about to deploy for a couple of weeks, and, uh, okay, I realized I was in the Air Force, all right, I know it comes across like, that's not a deployment. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Anyway, I was about to go away for a couple of weeks, and as you guys in the military know, when you go away, stuff happens at home, and my son loved skateboarding, and he was wanting to build jumps in the worst way, and I said, do not build any jumps while I'm gone. Of course, he didn't listen. And so shortly after I left, he built a jump, was out in the street jumping off this thing, and fell and broke his arm against the curb right behind the growth plate, right there, both bones hanging down like that, you know. And uh, my wife's great at first aid, though. She took care of it and got him up to the hospital and got it put in a cast. The next week, he's at school, and somebody was fooling around in the hallway and bumped into him really hard, and it hurt, and we thought, Okay, well, I guess it ought to hurt. It's a broken bone that's just freshly healing. And so a couple of weeks after that, we go back to the doctor for a checkup on this thing, and they say, oh, we've got a problem. The bones are now offset, so they're not straight anymore. They're not going to heal properly if we let this go. Now, you know, you could just let them heal, right? They would heal. They, you know, you'd have a lump. You might have a crooked arm. It might be twisted a little funny. But you could compensate. People have done it for years. They've let bones heal without doing anything special to them. The alternative is to go back in, go to surgery, have it broken again, and that's really painful, and then reset it and get it healed correctly. Now, we chose the latter thing for our son. I mean, I knew he wasn't going to be a tennis star anyway, but I'd rather have him have a straight arm. And, uh, you know, we did love him and still love him. And... uh, He could have compensated, but we didn't want that to be the rest of his life. We wanted him to be able to live a normal life with a normal arm. But that's what we do sometimes with the pain that comes with sexual assault. 
we compensate for the rest of our lives. Uh, so this may open up some old wounds for some of you. It may feel a lot like I'm rebreaking your arm. Uh, I don't mean to bring pain to you. I just know that that's part of this process. We do have some resources that I want to tell you about. Uh, you may have noticed out in the book table this morning, there's some new books out there. Uh, the first one is uh, Rid of My Disgrace by Justin and Lindsay Holcomb. This one's a more recent book that's been written on the topic of sexual abuse. It, it really covers the spectrum for adults, and it helps you understand what's going on inside of you and what's going to happen if you allow Jesus to do some healing within you. And so it's really helpful in that regard. Uh, this one, The Wounded Heart by Dan Allender. Dan Allender is kind of the, uh, he is the acknowledged expert in the uh, field of dealing with childhood sexual abuse in adults. And a really helpful book. It's been around for quite a while. And Allender's been at it for over 20 years now, so he knows his stuff. Uh, but somebody told me in the early service they had started reading this last week, and it turned their life upside down. Uh, you could take that in a bad way, but, but it's a good thing that it helps you understand things. A uh, third one, Redemption, which you may have already seen before here at the church, is not specifically about sexual abuse or sexual assault. It deals with the idea that we all suffer at some point in our lives. All of us endure suffering. And Jesus wants to redeem us through that suffering. He wants to do things in our lives, and so this book deals with it from that regard. I also have... Uh, a set of CDs that are from a conference that Dan Allender does, and there are hours and hours of things in here to listen to that are really good stuff. It's expensive. It's 95 bucks, but worth having. <clears throat> and I've got a, a resource list, which is also posted on our blog uh, that gives you uh, both the books, uh, some audio things to listen to, links to articles, links to counseling resources, and things like that. So you need those kind of resources, you can get them on the web or you can pick up one of these sheets up here. And at the end, we've got a couple of other things we'd also like to, uh, to help you with. Uh, we're going to start in the Old Testament today, so if you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's on page 264 in those pew Bibles, 2 Samuel 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Okay, you need to know that David had several wives. And these two guys, Absalom and Amnon, were born from different mothers. Tamar is Absalom's sister. Amnon is born from another mother. Okay, so Tamar is kind of like a stepsister to Amnon. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David said to Tamar, saying, 
Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out for me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. And she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Let's pray. God, we, we have a tough time understanding how awful we can be and how these things that happen are allowed to happen. But God, in the midst of this, help us to, to see you, to say that you are not ashamed of us, that you love us and you care for us, you delight in us. God, help us to, to find hope and what you have in your word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. It is amazing that, and it's one of the things that helps you see the Bible as a real document. See, God's not ashamed to tell us the truth. These things happened. They happened in the first family of Israel. Remember the father of this family, the man after God's own heart? It's a horrible story. It's full of deception and violence and then shame. And then apathy. One of the first things you need to notice about Amnon is that he's a schemer. He's developed this insatiable lust in his heart. And he will not be satisfied unless he gets what he wants. And so he takes the advice of another schemer and he works at doing what he wants. See, it's interesting that God puts a typical story of sexual assault in the Bible because the news media would tell you that the typical story is some pervert jumping out of the bushes with a knife, grabbing someone, and then assaulting them. That happens, but that is far from the norm. Over 80% of the time, sexual assault is committed by a relative, an acquaintance of the family, a 
teacher, a supervisor, a co-worker, a dating partner. It's somebody you know most of the time. Much like Amnon, they're schemers. They've developed this insatiable lust and it won't be satisfied until they get what they want. And what they do in their scheme is called grooming. It's what Amnon does to David in verse 6. See what it says there? So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. What he was doing was trying to get David to let down his defenses because David would have been the obstacle to getting Tamar where he wanted her. And then he grooms Tamar. When she arrives, Tamar went to her brother's house. As he was lying down, she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked them. He's in the kitchen with her when she's doing this. He is working at trying to bring down her defenses. Now, it doesn't work, at least not the way he planned it, and so he uses force. But they gain trust through deception, and then they betray the people that they've trusted them. Unfortunately, in our country, there's an epidemic of sexual abuse and sexual assault, and I'll use those words interchangeably, Uh, Because we often think of abuse as against children and assault against more mature people. uh, But actually, it's all assault. But it's estimated that in our country right now, every two minutes, there is a sexual assault. Statistically, one out of four women and one out of six men will experience sexual assault sometime in their life. That means that right now in this room, among you, there are 50 to 70 people who have suffered from sexual assault or are suffering from it. Within the military, it was estimated in the last year, there were 26,000 sexual assaults. About 3,400 of those got reported, which is an example of how underreported this crime is. That's why all these estimates are low, because people don't want to talk about it. The one thing that really stuck out to me about the military sexual assault issue is that over 54% of those are against males. But the usual within the United States here, total population, 88 to 92% of the victims and the 16 to 19 year old women are the most likely to be assaulted, like Tamar. 8 to 12% are males, 10 to 14% of all marriages include sexual assault. 10 to 20% of children in the general population experience incest. 15% of the victims less than 12 years old. 29% in the age of 12 to 17. And 80% of victims less than 30 years old. One thing that really got my attention is that the prevalence of PTSD among sexual assault victims is second only to those who go to war. So let that sink in. I mean, it's awful. See, the statistics all give us a picture of the problem, but that's not the problem that we can fix right now. The problem we want to deal with is that uh, there are effects to sexual assault, and those effects are long-lasting. You know, if you've ever had this brought up in a group, (laughs) that everybody's immediately trying to move away and change the conversation. As Allender and Tremper Longman say, the shame victims experience after sexual assault can feel like a prolonged and tortuous death. What does Tamar say? As for me, where could I carry my shame? 
Where can I hide? See, victims of sexual assault want to hide. They don't want to be seen. But there's nowhere to hide from the shame of it. Then in verses 19 and 20, she leaves, puts ashes on her head, tears her robe. She's crying as she went. At the end of verse 20b, it says, So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother's house. And I've got a picture of what desolation looks like. There's nothing there. Most of the time, just like in this typical story in the Bible, there is no help for the victim. The family doesn't know what to do. It's not because they don't care. It's because they don't understand the long-term effects of sexual assault. And mostly it's because, like David's family, there's a reputation to be upheld. No matter what your family is, there's something you don't want seen in your family, and it's that kind of shame. And so, in order to protect themselves, they think it's okay if we just never talk about this again. Can I emphasize, first of all, to you victims, it's not your fault, okay? I know that these voices are constantly accusing you, saying, yeah, see, if you hadn't, if you hadn't, no, it's not your fault. It is not. Absalom's comment to his sister reminds me of something my mother used to constantly say to me. Every time I fell down, hurt my knee, whatever it was that I suffered hurt, you'll live. You'll live. Well, okay, she was right. And in my less compassionate moments, when I'm seeing my wife suffering from something, I use that very same phrase. And for the most part, it's true. He said to her, Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this for heart. Yeah, she was going to live, but what was it going to be like? A life full of misery. When you think of a desolate woman, think of forlorn, alone, no friends, no hope, dismal life. She spent the rest of her life as a desolate woman. Her her family effectively said, we're not talking about this again, and they didn't offer any more comfort or care. There wasn't concern for the victim. There was a deep desire to protect the family reputation. See, some things, you, they happen to you in life and you get over them. Sexual assault is not one of those things. I'm going to look at uh, another passage. You don't have to turn there with me, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and the question I'm asking here is, why does sexual assault affect us so deeply? I mean, why don't we get over it? Why do the things that happen to us in that episode affect us for the rest of our lives in a way that are hard to understand? Well, the answer is here. It's in the way God created us. And, and when I read this, please, the victims, don't take this as if I'm reading something to, use it to say don't do this. This is talking from the standpoint of God speaking to those offenders. But the ones offended, the ones who have been assaulted, suffer the same consequences as this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, God created us 
in a way that we have emotional aspects, spiritual aspects, mental aspects, and physical aspects. So when the culture around us says, it's just sex, it's just a physical act, what's the big deal? It's not true. It's a lie. The reason this affects people so deeply is because this is right at the intersection of all the image of God within us. It's emotional. It's mental. It's spiritual. That's why it affects us so deeply. It affects every aspect of your life. The way you trust God or don't trust Him. Your trust in relationships with other people. Your sexuality. The way you view yourself. You think that, okay, I'm glad that's over. And then a smell or a comment by somebody or a picture. Something you see on TV suddenly awakens a memory and you're back to dealing with persistent problems. I won't, I'm not going to read the entire list of other effects to you. Like, there's a list in this book, The uh, Rid of Our Disgrace, and I'm not kidding you, it covers the entire page. That's how long the list is of the other effects. But here's just some of them. Fear, despair, feeling of isolation, alienation, reduced ability to express emotions, feeling powerless, confusion of sex with love, impaired ability to judge the trustworthiness of others, hypervigilance, exaggerated startle response, self-mutilation, cutting. list goes on and on. The problem is that those, when there's no healing... We start compensating. It's like the arm never got fixed. And so we have to do something different in order to survive. It's like Tamar's story ends with no hope. They don't give us any resolution to that story. She lived as a desolate woman. But for us, there's hope. For survivors of sexual abuse... There is hope. It's not in self-help programs. It's not in looking in the mirror and saying, I'm a better person than that. No, it's in a person. His name's Jesus. He's our only hope. He's the only one who can really promote healing. It's in putting our identity in Him that we can have hope. Healing comes through Jesus. There's nowhere else to get it. Let me turn to another passage with you. It's in John chapter 5. We're going to look at another story that ends a little differently. Because we need to see that, you know, God, God leaves us without an answer. A Tamar story, but he doesn't leave us without an answer, okay? He does give us hope in this situation. Page 890 in the Pew Bibles, John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. It's an amazing story. We don't even know what this guy's problem was because the word that's used to describe his sickness is just 
a general word for sickness. He was sick. We don't know why Jesus chose him, but you do have to wonder what would cause a person to feel like he could never beat anybody else to the water. I just want to speculate a little bit since it's left so general in the Bible that it's possible that he had been the victim of sexual assault. It's possible that he was so incapacitated in living life that he just couldn't deal with reality. He couldn't deal with what was around him. He was hoping for a miracle. How would he view other people? Everybody around him, everybody he sees is there to get what he wants. He wants healing. He wants a miracle, something to happen in his life. But he can't beat them. They're all competitors. Why should he trust them? And so he wouldn't trust other people. How would he view God? In his society, if you were suffering sickness, they viewed it as your problem because you sinned. You might think, well, God is cruel. He's punishing me for my sins or my parents' sins. I don't even know what they were. You may have thought, God doesn't care about me. I've been here my whole life, and I've seen no evidence of God's care. He may have thought, it's not fair. Look, there's other people. They walk right through here. They're not sick. Have you ever felt that way? You ever been in the middle of suffering? It could be a picture of any one of us when we're suffering and what we think about God and other people. And then Jesus asked this question. It's just... I mean, you have to wonder how strange it seemed. Do you want to be healed? See, behind that, there's another question. Or would you rather choose to stay like you are right now? Why would someone not want to be healed? Maybe, after you've been that way for such a long time, you can't even imagine what well looks like. What would healing look like? You don't know. Your life has always been like this. This is the way you live it. And maybe it's just too overwhelming to think that you might actually have to say, I'm helpless. I need help. Maybe he had been betrayed before. And once people are betrayed, they're really wary of putting hope in anyone because they know it could happen again. They don't want to feel that pain again. Maybe he's just too ashamed to face the truth about the whole situation. Or sometimes we're so proud of the way we're living life that we just deny that we need any help. But imagine yourself in this, in this scenario. Here you are on your mat, and Jesus comes and squats down in front of you, looks you in the eyes with his compassionate eyes, says, do you want to be healed? He sees everything within us. He sees all of our suffering. He knows what's going on inside of us. And you can imagine the gears turning in this guy's head, thinking, oh, why would I be here if I didn't want to be healed? Starting to come up with objections in his mind. And the answer he gives, at first it looks like, well, he's dodging the question. He's not really saying yes or no. But I really think it expresses what he's really feeling because he says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. No man. He's all alone. I have a picture of what aloneness looks like. 
You know, when you, when you are feeling all alone, yeah, it gets you pushed down, weighted down all the time. He's really saying to Jesus, I'm all alone in this condition. I'm helpless. No one is offering any help. I've been hoping for a miracle all my life. Others seem to get miracles and I don't. Everybody's just out for themselves. His hope has been put in his ability to get to that pool. In his ability. And that's a problem for us. John Calvin says, A sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself more than he conceives in his own mind. See, we all do that at some time or another. We create this little God that we can keep in a box and then we only let things happen that we think that God can do. And we claim to be trusting God, but we're only trusting the little God that we dreamed up, the one that we limit within our heart. And like the man at the pool, we're carrying this lifetime of hurts. See, the stuff that we suffered or the things we did to other people, but we compensate to carry that baggage. Sometimes our identity is tied up as Christians and what we know about the Bible, how good we are at doing things for other people, or we live by being a victim. See, we protect ourselves and keep people at arm's length. We wear masks so that other people can't see us. We deny the pain. We put on this nice smile. People ask us how we're doing. Oh, we're fine. Fine as fine can be. Life is just great. And we stuff the memories and the pain. And just like this guy... We live for a long time doing that. The truth is, you know, we can live in desolation. We can live in aloneness. But like you say, do you want to be healed? Man said, I am all alone. And Jesus, God incarnate, stooping down there, says by his compassionate actions, you're not alone. I'm here for you. Says the sick man, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And he's literally saying, start walking and keep on walking. Because it's easy to say, well, this doesn't feel very good. I think I'll lay down again. And Jesus is emphasizing that there's going to be a continuous action here. There's nothing in this passage to explain his faith. There's no statement that says, you know, because of his great faith, he was healed or anything like that. But he didn't lay there and say, I can't. He did move. He did get up. God gives us the faith to move. You can trust that he will. He does it for salvation. He does it for other things. Now, like I said, reviewing the events of our lives can be really painful. Thinking about significant things that help make us the people we are can really be a tough thing to do sometimes. About seven years ago, I was in a meeting in Colorado. I was up in the Rocky Mountains in this very nice cabin with a bunch of other guys. And uh, <clears throat> we would go around a circle each night, and two guys would tell us what was going on in their lives, and then we would pray for those guys. And one of the guys happened to make a comment during that about how he had become the person he was. And it was like, you know, didn't mean anything at the moment, but... All of a sudden, it triggered this question in my mind. How did I become the person that I am? How did I get to be me? And I couldn't get away from it. I couldn't escape the question. 
And when we were done, I spent the next two hours sitting in this recliner, staring out through the darkness, pondering this question. And after about two hours, God gently gave me an answer. You see, what he told me was, yes, Jim, for 40 years, you have been trying to hide from the shame. Yeah, I looked okay to most people. I, I was competent. I was respected for Bible knowledge, my technical knowledge. I could fix all kinds of stuff. I could do things that covered up my helplessness and my shame. I was trying to compensate for my past hurts. and My identity was rooted in my skill, and my knowledge, and what I could control in my life. There I was on my little mat for 40 plus years. See, about 47 years ago, uh, I'd rolled out that mat next to the pool and begun hoping for a miracle. And uh, like the guy at the pool, I was just dealing with life. Okay, I just had to deal with it. I had become sick from the effects of sexual abuse I suffered as a child. A family friend, who was also my piano teacher and my Sunday school teacher, abused me from the time I was nine until I was 14. And when it was discovered, the leadership of the church that I was in, and I have to remember, 47 years, this was in the 1960s, guys. You didn't say the word sex and pedophile. Okay? Nobody, you know, come on. There were no books written by those subjects or anything, except in medical things. So they didn't want their name in lights, and so they made sure that things were kept quiet, so they drove the perpetrator out of the church. He went off somewhere else. I got a couple of interrogations from the pastor and from my parents, and then I guess they looked at me and said, I think he'll be okay. And that was the last time it was ever spoken of. So I was left with, I don't know, even today it's hard for me to understand what I did to compensate. I understand some of it, and I can explain some of it to you. Uh, but basically the family was saying, we don't want to talk about this, this is awful, and we just don't want to hear about it again. So. I was left alone to deal with it. I kept people from ever really knowing me. I kept anybody who knew me would think, wow, he's really kind of cold and intimidating, and I don't know if he really likes people at all. It was me being afraid. It was me afraid that if you knew me, you would never come near me again. I could demonstrate my Christian life by fixing your problems or your car. I was filled with anger underneath. Uh, it was just the result of me sinning because of the sin against me. I'm not justifying it. I'm just telling you that's what happens to us. We become sinners. We are. And we sin against other people because we are so afraid. We, won't, we can't love other people. There was no way I could love people because I wasn't going to let you love me. Any of you see the recent Star Trek movie? Yeah? Okay, if you didn't see it, do you know who Spock is? Okay, the, the half, half-human Vulcan person who doesn't like to express emotion, who thinks that he doesn't have to. In the latest movie, I was watching this with friends on Thursday night, and Spock is trying to explain to his, uh, his partner, Ahura, why he refuses to express emotion. And, and he hit the nail on the head for sexual abuse victims and for the rest of us too. He was, what he said was, 
What I experienced when my home planet was destroyed was so awful. It, it made me feel so bad that I decided I would not experience that emotion again. Well, that's how I explained myself before I came to the realization that I needed to be healed. I never wanted to feel that emotion again. And so I was a very hidden person. You weren't going to know how I was feeling. If somebody asked me how you're doing, I go, okay. That's all you're going to get. <laughs> that's all you're going to find out. Well, because I was being asked the question, do you want to be healed? I had to give an answer. And I guess I agreed with God that night that, okay, I want to be healed. And uh, I came to the conclusion that I had to tell somebody what happened. So the next day as we're driving back to Denver, I had two guys in the car with me that I trusted. And for the first time ever, I told two guys what had happened to me. Now, I had told my wife when we were dating, but I had never talked about it again. And I'm sure I was totally dissociated from it emotionally when I told her. But when I told these two guys, I was falling apart. I don't know why they let me keep driving the car. <laughs> it was probably dangerous. But it felt like I was getting my arm broken again. You know, it really hurt. And, uh, and the hurt went on for quite some time because this is a process. Uh, Becoming vulnerable to others and learning that I really had to trust God uh, was an eye-opener for me. Changing the whole idea that it wasn't my Bible training and knowledge that was going to save me. It was trusting in Him. Because really I was trusting in myself. I feared I'd completely fall apart. I had no idea what was really going to happen. Uh, but Jesus had said, get off the mat, pick it up. You're not going to need it anymore. And I trust the healing process began. In that process, it was amazing to see what happened because all of a sudden I discovered that if I let people listen to me, they could love me because of Jesus in them. There were people all around me who were willing to care. They were willing to do things that others found shameful listening to those stories, listening to what I was feeling, listening and encouraging. See, we're not alone, right? It's one of the really important things we need to know in this life is because Jesus is in each of us, he's working through each of us. And we can be the person that a victim needs. We can be the one who can encourage them in their suffering. He's a, he's a wonderful, compassionate Savior. I'm not going to lie to you and say this is an easy journey. It is not. My wife will tell you that there were two to three years that uh, I was a hard person to live with. Because you never knew if I got up in the morning whether I was going to be able to be talked to or not. You didn't know if I'd be contemplating suicide that day or not. So I don't want to sugarcoat it for you. It is like getting your arm rebroken. But do you want to be healed? Or do you want to go on compensating? Let me give you just a couple of steps uh, that uh, you can take that would be positive things you can do. If, you, if you've heard that question, do you want to be healed, and you know that God is tugging at your soul to do something, 
we have some folks who will be willing to pray with you after the service. Uh, they'll either probably be in the back holding one of these white cards. I'll show you in a minute. And uh, what I'd ask them to pray for you for is clarity as to what to do with the hurts that you've suffered. Just asking God that question, what do you want me to do next? If you're not to that point where uh, you don't want to do that, maybe you have a trusted friend that you could share your story with. And, you know, maybe you've shared it before. Uh, Sometimes we tell those stories, but like when I told my wife, Diane, before we were married, it it was totally emotionless for me when I told it. That's not really telling my story because I wasn't dealing with the pain of it. I was just telling. It was like I was telling somebody else's story. If you aren't ready to tell somebody, I would really encourage you to get one of these books, one of these resources, and begin reading it so you can begin to see what's going on inside of you and how Jesus can heal what's going on inside of you, can give you new hope and new life. And finally, something I find that's really helpful is to really, you need to be in a community of believers, a small community of believers, where you can be vulnerable, where you can be known, And you will find out when you get in that kind of a community that there are people around you who are suffering from the same things you're suffering from. There are other people who need to be heard, who need to be listened to, who want to be team members with us in pursuing Christ. For those of you who are not the victims of sexual assault, uh, I would just say that we need to pray to ask God to give us compassion for those who are to be a listener and encourager to them, to be someone who can be trusted with what they're going to tell you. And then if you're a spouse and your spouse has been the victim of sexual assault and you really haven't talked about it much or done anything, I'd really encourage you to get one of these books and read it. Maybe even read it together so that you can understand what your spouse is struggling against. And finally, for the ones who are not victims, please try to be a safe haven for those who want to tell you something, who want you to pray with them. Be a listener. They don't expect you to fix them. They don't want you to fix them. We live in a microwave society, and we assume that if it can't be done in five minutes, it probably can't be done. That's not true. God is at work always in our lives for as long as we're alive. And it takes time to work through this. This is a long process. Now, I know that's not all joyful. Uh, I didn't expect it to be. I knew that it would be hard. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about how to care for people and you know you want to be prepared to talk to somebody, these cards, I have a few up front. There's some on the table out there in the foyer. But basically, it's what to do if someone shares their story with you. Because there are things we can say that aren't the right things to say. They're not helpful. And so this is very useful in helping, uh, helping train you in that regard. Um, let's pray as we close. Gracious God, we know that you love us. We know that you sent your son to die for us, that he has experienced shame unlike any we've experienced. And yet, he loves us, cares for us. He's rooting for us. He wants us to be healed. He wants us to accept his offer of healing. 
Help us, God, to accept that, to answer the question, and to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.